U.S. Senator Josh Hawley has been criticizing how State Auditor Nicole Galloway has conducted an audit of his time as Attorney General. And this week, a House committee questioned members of Galloway's staff about the unreleased audit. So on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and I break down the conflict between Holly and Galloway. We also talk with St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman about the controversy surrounding St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Julie O'Donohue. Later in the show, we're going to talk with St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman about the saga surrounding St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. We're also going to talk about a debate that I started on Twitter about higher state legislative pay. But the first topic of discussion is an unreleased audit conducted by State Auditor Nicole Galloway of Josh Hawley's time as Missouri Attorney General. Under state law, whenever there is a transition from one statewide office holder to another, the state auditor does what's called a closeout audit on that office. This happened when Greitens resigned and Parson became governor and Parson resigned as lieutenant governor and Keogh became governor. It's a pretty common practice. Josh Hawley resigned as attorney general in early 2019, but his closeout audit is still ongoing. And before this audit actually came out, Josh Hawley was criticizing various aspects of the way the audit was conducted. His complaints are are basically threefold. Number one, Galloway hired David Kirby, who's Claire McCaskill's former campaign manager, as a legislative liaison. Number two, a staffer that oversees audits, Bobby Showers, had made disparaging comments about President Donald Trump and had donated a small amount of money to Claire McCaskill's campaign. And number three, there was an email that was accidentally sent to the attorney general's office about taking out a portion of an audit that dealt with confidentiality after an auditor staffer received a satisfactory answer about that and, quote, beefing up something on personal calendar and personal email. This is what Josh Hawley told me in an interview earlier this month about why he's been so critical of Galloway. I just think that this is this is somebody who wants to be the governor of the state of Missouri. I think these questions about uh, what's going on in her office are really important ones, and I think it's important we have an independent auditor that's actually discharging the duties of her office as the uh, Constitution and laws require. There was a hearing this week, a legislative hearing on this. Prior to that, Josh Hawley has been complaining very loudly about this on on um, social media um, and to the press. Um, so I, I, I think prior to this hearing being scheduled, he had been trying to attract attention to the fact that he thought that this audit was not conducted fairly. 
And I think we should also mention that when you do an audit of, of someone, of an agency or of a person, uh, you often give them a copy of the audit before it's released. So it, it's very likely that Josh Hawley has actually seen this audit that he is complaining was not done fairly. So there were a couple of key takeaways from this hearing where the staffers from Galway's office actually answered several of Holly's contentions. Number one, uh, they told House committee members that David Kirby was not involved in the audit and he explicitly recused himself. Number two, they said that Bobby Showers was replaced by John Halls, who's a longtime staffer of the audit, just to avoid the appearance of impropriety and bias. And number three, they contended that the email in question did not violate any anything and was not uh, an issue for them. So those were the big three takeaways. And that was the first time that Galloway's office had responded directly to some of the contentions. And I also want to play a clip. And this is an exchange between State Representative Peter Meredith, who's a Democrat, and John Halls, who is now overseeing this audit, which is still ongoing. This is questioning from Meredith about whether Halls found any latent bias in the course of the audit. The person was Bobby something uh, that you replaced, mm-hmm. um, Showers, uh, was removed because of a, a basically a news story that created a perception. Uh, basically some tweets maybe even created a perception of, of there being a bias. And to remove any question of that, they said, let's just, you said, let's just replace him and then Correct. there won't be an issue. Appearance, appearance of bias. Yes. In your two weeks since you've come into that position, has there been any indication of any actual bias in the course of this audit? Can I not sure if you can, can answer. answer that, yes. I have not identified anything. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, so that move sounds to me sort of like putting suspenders on top of a belt um, to just make sure that you've covered your basis because there was a public uh, incident that, that somebody suggested there was impropriety and to avoid any appearance you just said we'll be safe. Well, yeah, correct. From the beginning, I don't believe that there was any bias that occurred throughout the audit. Okay. But again what we're doing in making the change was to eliminate even any appearance of that. So, Julie, both of us have been following this for a long time. Um, what do you make of this situation? Well, I want to go back to what I was saying before, which is it is likely, I don't know this for sure, but Jason, you've talked to them. It's likely that Holly's folks have seen an audit because it's forthcoming. It's likely they've seen a copy of it. And some of me wonders whether they've seen a copy of it and they are upset about what's in it. And this has caused them to um, start asking questions about whether it's biased or not. Uh, I, I wonder about that because it seems likely that they've seen it and they might be upset about it. One of the things that's going on in the background of this is that there was reporting done in 2018 by the Kansas City Star that showed that maybe some Holly's political team that was working on his Senate race was influencing the staff at his attorney general's at the attorney general's office when Holly was there. And I think there's some speculation, again, I don't know, there's some speculation that maybe the audit deals with some of this. I think especially the stuff where he's kind of bringing up this stuff with his personal calendar and whatnot makes me think that maybe the audit does deal with some of that stuff. So I think the question is, Senator Hawley may indeed have um, very good reason to be bringing up some concerns about bias uh, from the auditor's office. 
But also, is he doing this to get ahead of what might be a, a potentially difficult audit for him to explain? I actually asked Senator Hawley directly whether he was speaking out now because he wanted to get ahead of findings in the audit. And he alluded to how he reacted when Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, a Republican, was investigating interactions between his political staff and his taxpayer staff. Here's Senator Hawley again. Oh, and on this one in particular, when the Missouri Secretary of State said that he would look into it, uh, he asked my office for cooperation. Not only did we cooperate, but I asked that we release publicly all of the material that we gave to the Secretary of State, all the documents he asked for, all the emails. I asked that they be released to the public at the same time we gave them to the Secretary of State's office. So I'm just doing the same thing here. I've got nothing to hide. And by the way, the Secretary of State concluded a year ago that there had been no misconduct by anybody in my office or me. And uh, this is, you know, I, I think that that conclusion stands. And it should be noted that Missouri state law explicitly says that campaign money can be used for official government purposes as long as it goes toward the advancement and normal course of the office. So that, I think, is what Holly has been arguing all along, that the campaign staff helped with the official aspects of the office but didn't do anything like explicitly like electioneering or anything. Right. And again, we don't know if the audit contains anything that would would raise questions about how his campaign staff was interacting with the attorney general staff when he was there. I think what this has done for me is like raised my interest in what actually is going to be in this closeout audit. I'm not sure if that was the senator's goal, uh, but but it's it's like put it very squarely in my radar, this closeout audit, because of all the attention and all the concern he's raising about how it was conducted. I guess I, I would like to say also, um, I I think probably the optics on having someone who had given to Claire McCaskill and maybe made some comments about Trump on Facebook running the audit was maybe not great. Um, some of the other things, it's like hard for me to understand what the issue is. Like the, the email where they're beefing up the section about the personal calendar and whatnot, Outside of knowing what's in the audit, it's hard to know why that's even an issue. And we'll find out soon. And Galloway's office has said for a couple of weeks they can't talk about the audit until it's released. And it's still ongoing, according to the committee hearing. There's state law barring them from talking about it. So this will be something that we'll be following in the, the weeks ahead. And I think that because of the preemptive attention on this brought by both the senator and Republicans in the legislature there's going to be a lot of interest on what this audit actually shows. For our second segment, we're going to talk about what's going on at St. Louis County's jail, which has been the focus of intense scrutiny for a number of months. Julie, you've been following this issue pretty closely. Where, where are we right now? Well, I think it's good to give some like context or review. So in 2019, five people died while they were in custody at the jail or shortly after they left the jail and went somewhere else, like within a few hours of being somewhere else. And the most recent death occurred on December 27th. The man actually died in the hospital, but he got sick around Christmas, basically. Um And in response to the first, I'm going to say three deaths, maybe four deaths, uh, the county made some changes. They changed who was in charge of the jail. 
They also added this like citizens advisory board that's essentially supposed to be like a check on the jail. They don't really have any power, but they're supposed to be able to kind of weigh in and say, we don't think that this jail policy is working well, et cetera. Some really interesting people on that committee. You have the Reverend Philip Duvall, who has been kind of an outspoken opponent, for example, of Steve Stanger, but also just an advocate for a lot of social justice issues. Former state senator Jeff Smith, who was previously incarcerated in prison. Right. And you have Tim McBride, who is a big healthcare policy expert at Washington University. You have the COO of SSM, so like one of the major medical, you know, healthcare groups in the area. Yeah, there are a lot of very kind of interesting people on this board. My understanding, though, from your reading your reporting is this board is very upset, I guess, with the lack of clarity about what's what happened in the in the jail deaths. Right. So Three people died in the jail. They changed out some leadership. And then a fourth person died in the jail, and they put together this board. Or I should say Sam Page put together this board. And then this fifth person died, and I think the board members were thinking, okay, this is where we're going to have a new process of, like, how things are going to go differently than these previous deaths. And They may have gone differently, but the board feels like they haven't gotten adequate information about exactly what happened. In fact, they feel like they're reading in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about what happened or or what may not have happened. And that is very irritating to them. As as we've previously just laid out, some of them are are fairly high-profile people and They don't want to be on a board if they are not going to really be able to answer basic questions. So they got very angry last Friday. I would say very angry. I mean, they weren't shouting, but they they made it clear to the new head of the jail, Mr. Bonesco, that they want more information about the most recent death, about whether protocol was followed, about why this person died. In fairness, it's not clear that that question can be answered yet, but they want to make sure that the processes that they've been told are going to be in place were actually in place. I talked with Raul Bonasco pretty extensively, and in researching for that interview, it's really striking to me how jails across the country deal with many of the same issues, preventing prisoners from killing themselves, you know, the, the fact that many of them are coming into jail with drug problems and are suffering through withdrawal and just how to treat sick inmates. Like this is not a problem that is exclusive to St. Louis County, but it doesn't mean that the problem is any less serious. So is there any sense that St. Louis County is like looking to other jurisdictions to maybe figure out like how to deal with some of these problems? I think whatever just got put in place is supposed to be more of a best practices. And I think there's some question about whether it worked in this case. So I think they need to know that before they really can know if they need to implement anything new. And at least it sounds like the board doesn't necessarily have comfort that they know that the new protocols or the new way they're supposed to handle stuff was handled right. But I think the other interesting thing is it's hard to tell what St. Louis County is doing because they release so little information about these deaths, right? And so some of what the board has asked for and was asking for on Friday is they want a report and they want it to be in a fashion in which they can talk about it publicly. So that means 
you know, you're not identifying particular correctional officers who may have behaved poorly or, or well. You're not giving out very specific medical information that might be under HIPAA, which is the law that protects people from having their medical information go public. So I think it's hard to know if they're if if they're doing what's best practices because there's not a lot of information known about what they're doing. So I, I think that's actually kind of part of their point. But I will say we just had Councilman Mark Harder in here, and he said that it sounds like the county has looked to see, like, okay, do we have more jail deaths than a normal jail our size? Do we have fewer? And that there's no tracking of that. <laughs> so I think there is some problems with comparing yourself to other jurisdictions because you don't you don't know because there's not a like organization that tracks that stuff. If you're to believe him, that is a great opportunity to plug the fact that we do have a politically speaking with St. Louis County Councilman Mark Harder available on stlouispublicradio.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Make sure you listen to that as soon as you can. We'll be back right after this short break with St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lipman to talk about the saga of St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. And we're back on Politically Speaking, and now we have joining us St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lipman, and we're going to talk about St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. There's a lot of disparate news going on about St. Louis's Democratic prosecutor, Rachel, I'm going to ask you a very simple question that may elicit a complicated answer. What's going on with Kim Gardner right now, and why does she find herself in this legal and political predicament? Yeah, you really do know how to make very simple questions complicated, don't you, Jason? But the thing is, it is a complicated situation. Last uh, few weeks ago, January 13th, she filed a civil rights lawsuit in federal court, basically saying there is a conspiracy of actors. The city of St. Louis, the Police Officers Association, uh, one of its officials, Jeff Rorta, three individuals connected with the special prosecutor investigating the investigator, and a citizen who's been involved in some lawsuits against its office. There are multiple things that can really be true in this situation. Um, This is all rooted in her uh, prosecution in 2018 of former Governor Eric Greitens. Um, Her investigator that she hired, this outside investigator, found himself in a little bit of legal trouble that actually led to the case being dismissed. And he has been uh, indicted on several counts of perjury and a count of evidence tampering for basically lying that he had taken notes during an interview with the woman with whom Greitens had had an affair, uh, lying about uh, just kind of some several other things. A special prosecutor brought this case because Gardner's office had a conflict of interest. A judge had ruled. She actually just had a deposition in this case last Friday after um, fighting it. And essentially what this lawsuit is arguing is that the actions of this special prosecutor, his son and daughter who are working on the case with him, the city, the St. Louis Police Officers Association, and these other people are part of a conspiracy to overturn the election and get her out of office. This is what Kim Gardner told me in an interview shortly after she filed the lawsuit. When you have a powerful few who has determined to silence the will of the people, this is why I filed this lawsuit, because it's about constantly having roadblocks placed in the will of the people who want reform in the city of St. Louis, and we can't be saying enough is enough. And that's why this lawsuit is is so important. Rachel, there's been some speculation that Gardner's lawsuit is aimed at upending the special prosecutor's investigation. 
And from talking with legal f- experts, there is a legal theory that federal judges are very wary of stopping a state investigation, except under very limited circumstances. Is that basically the main reason why this lawsuit is being filed? You could read it as that, yes. You could read it as she knows that there were some issues with the investigation and she knows that they may that she could eventually also find herself in trouble. I want to make it clear she has not been indicted in this case against her investigator. She's mentioned a number of times in his indictment, but she herself has not been charged. Isn't the reason, though, that she may be in legal trouble is because Kim Gardner was in the room when uh, Tizaby was interviewing KS. And when Tizaby made clearly incorrect or false statements during the deposition with Crichton's attorneys, Gardner didn't correct him. Yes, that is correct. The idea is if you are an officer of the court, which she is as a prosecutor and a lawyer, it is your duty to correct perjury on the record. So when she was sitting in uh, uh, William Tizaby's deposition and knew that he was lying about whether he had taken notes during these interviews, she had a duty to correct that. And by her not doing it, she is suborning or supporting perjury or lying under oath. One of the things that I think is key in this lawsuit, but also key among Gardner's political supporters, is there's a feeling that as the first female African-American prosecutor, she's being treated unfairly, and this entire situation is essentially the white legal establishment throwing down the hammer because she is a, a, quote, reform prosecutor. Have you heard similar things from supporters of Gardner. Yes, absolutely. And I think there are things that can be true in the same universe. Jason, you and I have talked about this a lot. The white legal establishment, the true, you know, the more law and order and for- law and order enforcement establishment can absolutely be turning their firepower on her and scrutinizing her actions in a way that maybe her predecessors being white, maybe not as reform oriented, didn't face. And she could also be loading the guns for them. She could be doing these things that are putting herself in a position to face their their scrutiny. She had to be aware that she was going to be facing some of the scrutiny. And she's just done some things in association with the Greitens case. There's been other cases where um, she's had to drop charges because of things that have gone with her office where she's giving them the ammunition. Now, is it unfair scrutiny? Should Jennifer Joyce, D. Joyce Hayes, all of those predecessors been under similar scrutiny for what she has done? Yes, likely. But also these things, she could be giving them the firepower. The Tizaby indictment is basically formed based off, I would assume, a recorded transcript of him being deposed by Greitens' attorneys compared to videotape showing his statements were completely not and true. And there was a whole drama around that videotape, too, if you remember. Originally, it was, oh, we weren't sure if it was recording. We didn't know if it was there. There were issues. The IT guy came and looked at it, and they managed to get it back. And, I mean, this this goes back to layers and layers and levels of drama. I guess I want to know, she has an election coming up, right? August of 2020. And what does this mean for her re-election prospects? Is she she's running again, correct? She is. Um, she's picked up one challenger so far. I know that there are others who are interested in getting in, but they are concerned that if they jump in, they split the vote. So they may be kind of stamping back and seeing what the field looks like. I think people are going to read into this whatever they want to read into it. The individuals who support her and believe that she is 
under you know this conspiracy of the as uh, the lawsuit puts it clear uh, cleanly um, entrenched interests in St. Louis who are thwarting her efforts to you know uh, rebuild trust in the criminal justice system. They are going to see this as you know her fighting the good fight. People who maybe are on the opposite side of this are going to read it as this you know last ditched effort to. Uh, distract from some of her issues. So it depends, I think, on on who who is looking at this lawsuit. Well, I have seen situations before where the black political community feels like they're under an existential threat, most notably in 2012 when Russ Carnahan ran against Lacey Clay. And that while this, turned into a whole big nothing burger, if I well, remember correctly. The reason I'm mentioning that, and it's obviously different from this, but that prompted even black politicians that didn't like each other to band together to protect a traditionally African-American seat. And the reason I'm bringing that up is I could see a similar dynamic occur in the city of St. Louis where the black political community becomes united behind Kim Gardner and the turnout is much higher than usual because they feel like this is a fight for their ability to wield meaningful power. You also potentially run into the issue, though, of the, you know, Southwest, St. Louis, traditional sort of police stronghold areas that we think of doing the same thing. It could just gin up turnout in sort of both situations, both sides. And it'll be interesting to see where the appeal is more, whether it is an anti-gardener or whether it is a pro-gardener. We want to protect this, you know, elected first African-American prosecutor in the city of St. Louis. That will be interesting, just the turnout numbers. Well, thank you, Rachel, for bringing us up to speed. We'll definitely be watching not only the legal aspect of the Gardner situation, but also the political one, which I think will be a fascinating thing to watch. It's going to be a busy August for this entire team. We'll be right back after this quick break. And now we come to the final segment of our show, which we lovingly call Show Me Something. I want to talk about something that is kind of taboo in not only Missouri politics, but maybe legislative politics all over the country. And that is arguments for higher legislative pay. Uh, This issue came to the forefront because in the last few weeks, three senators have resigned for six-figured appointments. Senators Jason Holzman and Kiki Curls, two Democrats from Kansas City, and more recently, Republican Senator Gary Romine of the Farmington area to be on the tax commission. And the Kansas City Star wrote an editorial with the headline, Why are Missouri lawmakers cashing out for lucrative taxpayer-funded state jobs? I replied to this tweet as follows. Three reasons. One, term limits. Two, these appointed positions have a fairly sizable amount of power and impact. And three, Missouri doesn't pay lawmakers enough money to justify them staying when a more well-paying opportunity comes along. And this sparked quite robust and I would say positive discussion. Um, 127 people as of this recording liked it, but there was a lot of people that completely disagreed with me. They were arguing that Missouri's legislative pay scale, which is about $35,000 for state representatives and senators, is fine. I make the argument that while that is certainly a decent pay scale if you are 27 years old, if you're already wealthy, if you're retired, or if you have a lucrative job that with flexibility, like being an attorney, 
it's not a doable thing if you make anywhere between forty and seventy thousand dollars a year, have kids, and would have to quit your job in order to be in the legislature. I think keeping the pay scale at that point definitely affects who will actually run for those seats. Julie, I know that you have a different perspective, and I want you to make your case. Yeah, at the risk of not making very many friends among Missouri lawmakers, I I don't have an entirely different perspective. I think that the question that you have to ask is, is this a full-time job or not? And I think I'll say full disclosure, the reason this kind of jumps out at me is because in Missouri, they are paying people much more than the other two states that I covered um, in Virginia. Lawmakers are paid $18,000 in the Senate and $17,600 in the House. And in Louisiana, they are paid just under $17,000 in the Senate and just under $23,000 in the House. Um, Now, they do have higher per diems, and that's a whole different discussion. But I think, like, I'm coming from two states where people complain about the pay a lot, and rightfully so, but it's also very much a part-time job, like... They are doing it either as a part-time job, they're retired, they're a, you know, their spouse is the breadwinner. And so, like, I think the fundamental question is, is this a full-time job or not? In California, where you're making $100,000, if you're making $100,000, I don't care that you live in California and it's expensive, I expect you to only be a legislator. I don't want you, like, working some part-time job on the side. In Missouri, people can work outside of the legislature. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm not saying people don't take huge hits to their income when they do so, uh, but they but they can. And I guess the question is, where is the ceiling for a part-time job? <laughs> because because right now it's technically a part-time job. If it was a full-time job, absolutely we should be increasing pay. Although I would say then you would get some lawmakers who would not want to do it because they don't want to do this full time. I I will also point out, and some people pointed out in their replies, that when legislators take another position that pays like $100,000, their pension goes up dramatically. A lot of those $100,000 a year jobs are full-time jobs. They have a lot of responsibility and power to them. Am I really that upset that like somebody's going to get a higher pension if the job that they're doing is more rigorous and has more responsibility? I mean, maybe if that person only does the job for a month and gets a pension bump, but I don't think that's the case. A lot of these people that move into these other positions stay on for, I don't know, four to eight years or something like that. I think also... Why can't you leverage your expertise that you gained as a lawmaker to go into some other state government job? You know, I mean, the governor is a former lawmaker, and he prefers to put former lawmakers in those jobs. I I am interested in the dynamic with him picking off senators, because I think that changes the the voting dynamic in the Senate. But in fairness, I don't think a person being on the Missouri Tax Commission that is a, a lawmaker, and I don't know anything about the senator who's going there, frankly. But I don't think that's that's necessarily a bad hire, if you will. Yeah. And I in, mean, fact, in fact, all three members of that commission are former senators. Now. Right. I, I, I don't know. I understand that some people will disagree with me on that, but but I don't think that that's necessarily like a bad hire. I think those people have experience. I think that this is kind of a moot conversation. I don't think we'll ever see legislators vote for a significant pay raise because <laughs> they would be fearful that they're going to get attacked in ads. And right. that's the reason why the pay scale is what it is. 
you know, people don't take the political hit for saying the pay scale is not conducive for what I was talking about. And this will just be the status quo. But we've run out of time for this week, and we'll just leave it there. For all of our stories, you can go to stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. We'd like to thank our executive editor, Shula Newman, and our politics editor, Fred Ehrlich. We'll see you next time, and have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.